Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. <clears throat> Revelation, chapter 13, verse 11. Revelation 13, verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And our subject this evening is the beast out of the earth. So we continue in our series in this book of Revelation. You'll all be very aware by now of how we have been studying this book. This book is a series of cycles, a book in which we are being shown the same thing repeatedly, again and again. It is not one long, continuous narrative. It's not like the Gospels, not like the Gospel according to Mark, for example, which starts with the very beginning of the ministry of Christ, and then goes on right to the end of his life and resurrection and ascension and so on. One long continuous narrative. The book of Revelation is not like that. It is a series of cycles and every cycle shows us the same thing but in a different way each time. And uh, the thing that it is showing to us, presenting to us, is of course the gospel Age, And this is the fourth cycle that we are in, the fourth view of the gospel age. And we are looking at the spiritual battle, the unseen battle that takes place in the gospel age. And uh, because we are looking at the spiritual battle, Satan has uh, featured quite prominently already because, of course, he is our great spiritual enemy. He's the enemy of God the enemy of Christ and the enemy of the Lord's people, our spiritual enemy. So what we are seeing in this cycle is how Satan, our great spiritual enemy, uh, attacks the church or at least attempts to attack the church in the gospel age. And uh, last week we looked at one of the ways that Satan employs an instrument, a tool, a helper to persecute the church and uh, the first instrument was the beast out of the sea. And just to remind you, the beast out of the sea symbolized uh, the world's kingdoms, the world's governments, the authorities throughout history whom Satan would employ to attack the church. Now, not every government Satan will use in that way, but uh, the vast majority of the time throughout history, you will see the persecuting power of governments. For example, in the Apostle John's time, there was the great persecution of the Roman Empire upon the Christians under Emperor Nero, for example. And then you can go through history as we did last week, the persecution of Christians in this country under Mary Tudor in the mid-1500s when so many believers were slain, burnt at the stake, and so on. And then you can think more modern, uh, in more modern times, the communist regimes uh, in the Soviet Union that oppressed the church in the Cold War, particularly in the 80s. 
And uh, even in the modern time, all those uh, countries, all those governments that ban the preaching of the word of God, all those nations where it is illegal to own the Bible, uh, or at the very least they're restraining the witness of Christian people, state-sanctioned persecution of Christian people. Satan will employ the state to uh, persecute the church and, uh, well, the more the world oppresses the word of God, the more they exalt themselves. That's what Satan encourages, self-worship. Self-worship is essentially the rejection of God and the persecution of the Lord's people. So that was the first beast out of the sea. But there is a second beast that we see in uh, verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now this beast does not look anywhere near as fierce as the first beast. Remember the first had a very fierce appearance. He uh, had uh, uh, the feet of a bear, he had the appearance of a leopard, the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and uh, well, he had uh, those seven heads and ten horns and so on. He was truly monstrous in appearance. But this one, of course, is not like that. He comes out of the earth, he looks like a lamb. He had two horns like a lamb. And, uh, well, really, this is giving the appearance of harmlessness. The appearance of a lamb, what harm can that do? So gentle, almost uh, a good image, almost uh, godly in its appearance. Do we not refer to the Lord Jesus Christ often as the lamb, the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world? We know that Satan imitates God and godly things. So we are not surprised to see that this second beast appears like a lamb, so harmless. And while well, we read in Second uh, Corinthians how those who are of Satan often appear as angels of light, like those who are of God, but they are not of God. And this beast is not of God. He looks like a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon. His words and influence are from Satan. So this is the second beast. And then verse 12, And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So this second beast, what we learn in verse 12, the second beast encourages worship of the first beast. The second beast points to the first beast and really gives authority to the first beast. Gives the first beast authority. The first beast cannot exercise authority without the second beast, without the work and the approval of the second beast. So to put it in another way, the second beast... Well, he persuades the world to worship the first beast. He convinces the world to pay homage. But who is the identity 
of this second beast. Well, this second beast, to put it very simply, and we'll see this in subsequent chapters of this book, the second beast is the false prophet. That's uh, how this beast will be referred to uh, later on in this uh, book of Revelation, the false prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel according to Matthew says in uh, Matthew 24, verse 24, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Christ spoke of false Christs, false prophets. And this beast is a representation of all of those false prophets and false Christs that will come into the world. This is what this second beast represents. And uh, really, these two beasts, the first and the second beast, they make up what we call the Antichrist. These two beasts... They are the Antichrist put together. And, uh, well, uh, this is uh, uh, something that Hermann Herxema uh, describes uh, very ably. He writes, the two beasts together form the picture of the full and complete anti-Christian power. The first beast pictures it in its political aspect. The second beast deals with its religious and moral and scientific forces. So the first beast, the political aspect, the world powers, the earthly kingdoms, the second beast deals with its religious, moral and scientific forces. And so these two beasts, they are the spirit of Antichrist. They are the Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist which has always been in the world. There have always been persecuting powers, and there have always been those who justify and moralize those persecuting powers, and those who deceive the people so that they support anti-Christian persecution. So these beasts, they are the Antichrist. They've always been in the world. Yes, there, there may well be an intensification as we come to the end, as we come to the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, an intensification or magnification of these things. But it's nothing new, really. There is, of course, nothing new under the sun. The spirit of Antichrist has always been there. And this is the picture of it. We're not really looking for one individual or so on, as many people think. The Antichrist is presented to us here in the 13th chapter of Revelation in these two beasts. But let's just consider further the second beast, the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. And let us consider his character which will be revealed to us uh, in these uh, uh, following verses. Verse 13, for example, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, uh, uh, many of you will be able to make the connection or see where the reference uh, originates from. Who is the one 
who made fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men? And the answer is uh, relatively easy. It's the prophet Elijah in the first book of Kings, chapter 18. But uh, this prophet, this beast, is the very opposite of Elijah. Again, he will seek to imitate the men of God. But he is the exact opposite of the men of God, the opposite of Elijah. And again, I quote Herman Herxema because he puts it very wonderfully in his commentary. And he states the contrast. Elijah stood before Jehovah, but this prophet stands for the opponent of Jehovah. Elijah spoke the truth of God. This prophet speaks the lie of the dragon. Elijah persuaded men to break down the image of Baal and serve and worship the true God. This prophet persuades men to forsake Jehovah and make an image for the first beast and the dragon. Elijah persuaded men to kill the priests of Baal. This prophet persuades men to kill the saints of the Most High. That's the contrast. I couldn't put it better than that. But uh, again, we see it. That's what uh, verse 13 is all about. The prophet, the false prophet, will uh, imitate the men of God, but they are the exact opposite of the men of God. But who are these false prophets? Let's try and identify them so that we can uh, make sense of this in the real world or uh, in the contemporary sense, perhaps, is a better way to put it. But the false prophets, well, they would include, of course, the other religions, all the other religions, well, uh, they are man-made. They have been created not by God, but by the uh, power of men. And so, by their very nature, they are opposed to the true gospel. But those who preach and those who present those religions, they are false prophets opposed to the gospel of God. The gospel speaks of grace, speaks of salvation that is freely given. All the other religions, you have to earn it. All the other religions, there's something in you. We can work our way to heaven. They are opposed one to another. And so uh, in that sense, well, uh, the false prophets they uh, glorify man. All the other religions in one way or another glorify men. The Christian religion glorifies God, gives God all the glory. But the false prophet, well, we've already not noted how Satan promotes self-worship. The false religions really, they're just another form of self-worship. There is something good in man. Man can earn his way to God. Man doesn't need a savior. Self-worship. And this is uh, one aspect of the beast and his false prophecy. It would also include the cults. Those who uh, even appear to be Christian. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. The Mormons, for example. They uh, appear to uh, share the same values, use the Bible, quote from the Bible. But of course we know that, uh, well, both the JWs and the Mormons and almost every other cult deny the deity of Christ. They topple Christ from his throne. 
Christ is not God. And that's the spirit of Antichrist. The Apostle John himself in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse uh, 1 John chapter 4 rather and verse 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Those who do not believe that Christ is God, that Christ is God manifest in the flesh, that's the spirit of Antichrist. So it would include, the false prophet includes such as the JWs and the Mormons, those who appear to be Christian, appear to be like the Lamb, but they are not Roman Catholics also, who again depend partly on their good works and not in Christ alone. False prophets, this is what the beast represents, the second beast of the earth. But maybe more relevant to this chapter is that these false prophets would also include well, earthly philosophers and uh, secular scientists. And what they do is they present to the world a life without God. A life without God, an existence where no God exists. God does not exist, therefore God is not the authority. The state is the authority, man is the authority. Worldly government is the authority. That's uh, very common, particularly in our modern culture. The philosophers, scientists, and so on, they are the false prophets who say there is no God. Therefore, we make the rules. Man is the authority. And by doing that, well, they give that power and authority to the first beast. The first beast is the worldly government by saying there's no God. Well, what authority is there? It's the government, it's man. That's how the, uh, the power is conveyed. So you think of all the philosophers of, uh, well, recent history, or we say recent history, you can go back to the Enlightenment period in the 1700s, people like John Locke and David Hume, their uh, uh, belief in skepticism and turning people away from religion and from God. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche saying God is dead. What are they preaching? They're preaching a, an existence, a life, a world without God. The false prophet Darwin, of course, how uh, uh, he is held in almost sacred terms. Charles Darwin origin of species, like a Bible for the atheist. This is religious language that is being used of all of these men. The origin of species, it's like a religious book. Darwin is like a secular prophet, the false prophet, urging men and women to believe in man's authority. There is no God. And so nowadays, well, we have the modern scientists Scientists perhaps now are the leading false prophets and those who are leading people away from God and they have such power in our modern society during the COVID pandemic 
Well, it was very clear uh, the power that the scientists had. Every word that the scientists would say was taken as uh, infallible. They cannot possibly be wrong. Almost as though it was the word of God. We must listen to the scientists. And well, of course, it was very obvious that what the scientists said gave power to the state. What the scientists decreed, well, then the state would act. It was almost a, a partnership, a very strong partnership that was being formed. The state could only act according to what the scientists said. The government were following the science. So you can see, well, yes, it was a legitimate health concern, but you can see how it's being played out, how the, uh, the false prophets, the secular authorities, give power to the state, to the government. And well, even uh, culturally nowadays, you think of uh, uh, the woke culture, almost like a religion. Again, the state supports woke culture. And uh, well, it's couched in terms of, uh, of morality, righteousness. If you support such and such a cause, you're a good person. If you don't support such and such a cause... You're uh, an evil and a wicked person. And uh, the woke culture, well, it borrows from Christian worldviews. Of course it does. It borrows from uh, uh, biblical values such as justice, social justice, and uh, love, love thy neighbor. It borrows from those things, but it's being used to support anti-God measures, anti-God laws. LGBT, supporting all of these things, same-sex marriage, and promoting unspiritual and worldly things, things that will ultimately oppose the church and harm the church. All of these things we have to be wary of. We have to show discernment concerning these things. The uh, false prophets all of these secular and atheistic things supporting the authority of the first beast. And uh, this, well, it's very relevant in our day and age at the present time. But let us move on because there's a lot of uh, uh, chapter 13 still to get through. Verse 14, the beast deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. Well, there's a lot in that. We speak about how the, we see how the beast works miracles. He deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Well, does the beast work miracles? Well, it's not miracles in the sense of Christ working miracles. They were true miracles from God. But what this most likely alludes to is that the achievements of men will be perceived to be as miracles. You think of, uh, of the great advances that men have made. And these will be uh, lifted up exalted as miracles, things like the Industrial Revolution and all the amazing engineering and the engineers 
Well, they're like gods. This is amazing. How could they have achieved so much? And we think of modern technology and all the means that we have of communication and travel, aviation, space travel, medicine. We can heal ourselves from so many things. Is this not miraculous? So really what the miracles refer to is uh, the secular powers just really vaunting themselves. Aren't we amazing? We can do almost as much as God does. These are the miracles and everybody's taken in. Everybody starts thinking, well, yes, man is as good as God. There's almost nothing man cannot do. And so we must trust in man. We must trust in man and in his government and in his authority. These are such miraculous things we are seeing. We can heal ourselves. There is nothing that we can't do. There are no limits. These are miracles. We don't need God for miracles. We can make our own miracles. And then the beast says to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Well, uh, I'm trying not to spend too much time on each of these. But, uh, well, we know that many of these uh, social causes, certainly, and false religions, they do often have their own images or logos accompanying them. But I think perhaps this means, what this means is that this religion, this religion that the second beast has set up, it's a religion without faith. A religion without faith, it needs an image. It needs something that we can see. That's how men's religion works. That's how this religion of the second beast, we don't need faith. That's what the enlightenment was all about. Reason, what you can see, what you can touch. Not the supernatural. That's all superstition. We don't need faith anymore. We want an image. This is how man's religion works. And this is the nature of the religion of the second beast. This is what he preaches. Don't have faith. We make an image. We only believe in what we can see. And this, of course, is the nature of uh, so much atheism in this world. But verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Well, uh, really this is speaking about the deception of uh, the second beast. In ancient times, false prophets would cause inanimate objects, statues, to speak by deception, ventriloquism, and so on, to give life to that which had no life, to make dead things appear alive. It was a deception. And so uh, really this is speaking about how everything that the beast preaches is, uh, is a deception and is not to be believed. That which uh, appears to be speaking and appears to have life. There is no life in the philosophy of men. And then we read that uh, the beast caused that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth, verse 16, all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, 
to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Well, now here we come to the mark of the beast, and uh, you're probably expecting some mind-blowing explanation as to what the mark actually is. But, uh, well, let's take this just bit by bit. The beast causes that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Well, the uh, believers at the time of uh, John giving or having the revelation that we are reading of here, uh, the believers in Jerusalem were very often uh, persecuted and uh, uh, cast out of their livelihoods and were not able to buy in the markets or to trade in the markets because they were believers, because they professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that those who are uh, the possession of God, those who belong to God, will they also have a mark? They have a mark. It's not visible, but they most certainly have a mark. We read of that or we read of that in chapter 7 of this book of Revelation. Chapter 7 and verse 3, the angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, uh, that's verse 2 rather, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servant of, servants of our God in their foreheads. You see, the children of God, they have their mark, they have their seal, and lo and behold, it's in the same place, in the forehead. But of course, we don't read this and think this is a literal, visible mark. This is something that is seen by God. These people, they belong to God. They have my seal upon them. They are my possession. And so when we read this, this helps us interpret what the mark of the beast is. That which causes all, verse 16 of uh, chapter 13, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. We take this in the same sense as the sealing of the saints. The forehead, well that represents what we think. Our thoughts, our mindset our priorities in life. And really the mark of the beast, that is, how do we think? Are we those who trust in the Lord? Do we have faith in God? Or are we those who belong to the world? The mark in the forehead. We have rejected Christ. We refuse to repent. Our minds, our thoughts are not of God. This is the mark of the beast in the forehead. And what we think, what is in our minds, what is in our hearts, will be seen in our actions. And that's the mark in their right hand. The forehead symbolizes the thoughts, the thought life, the right hand, the deeds. 
In other words, what this is saying very simply is you will identify those who are not the Lord's by the way they think, by the way they act, by their deeds, the things that they do, the sins they commit. Did not the Lord himself say, by their fruit ye shall know them? By their fruit, the things that they do, say, not by a mark, not by a visible mark on their bodies, by their fruit ye shall know them. And so uh, I'm very sorry to disappoint people who have this uh, image of some mark or barcode or chip being inserted into our bodies. But really, this is a book of symbols, remember, that signify something else. And in the same way in which the righteous are sealed, have a mark upon their foreheads, this sign of the beast is a similar thing. We are set apart. This is a scriptural distinction. We are set apart by our deeds. And so if we read it that way, there's no inconsistency. It follows with the rest of scripture. In verse 17 and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Well, I've mentioned the early believers, how they could not buy or sell in the open market, deprived of their livelihood. And we're sort of seeing the same thing in our modern culture, this cancel culture. Surely you will have seen it if you do not support the, uh, the narrative if you do not support what they are calling British values, if your speech does not accord with it, well, then you may lose your job. Then you may lose your livelihood. Then you will be marginalized. Then you will be mocked and scorned. You will not be able to participate in life as others can participate in life. Those who hold Christian values and teaching, well, we've seen how they can be imprisoned, how they have threats placed upon them. We've uh, spoken about the conversion therapy law and how if a Christian says one thing out of turn, they're imprisoned, their lives are taken away from them. It's the same thing. No man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Those who believe in the, uh, uh, the way of the world, well, they're fine. They can do whatever they want. But those who refuse, well, they will be ostracized and cancelled, and uh, things will get worse and worse to the very end of time. But then, well, verse 18, again, well, we've uh, uh, had... Uh, uh, a very perhaps underwhelming explanation of the uh, of the uh, mark of the beast. Here comes uh, probably an equally underwhelming explanation of the number of the beast. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Now, uh, there are many uh, weird and wonderful explanations of what this means, uh, normally drawn up from mathematics, 
and uh, how certain letters have certain numerical values and you add them all up and so on. But I'm going to present to you the simplest, which is almost always uh, the right explanation. So the number of the beast, 600, three score and six, 666. Well, remember that numbers always have a symbolic value. And we've uh, noted many times that the number seven, the number seven is a number of divine perfection. Number six, therefore, is just short of the mark. Number six is not divine perfection. Number six is the number of the creation. It's the number of the creature. In six days, God created man. And on the sixth day, man was created. So really, 666, and I'm simplifying this very much, it's really, it's the creation without God. It's just 666, just the creation, no seven. Seven symbolizes God. But what this world that is being presented to us here in the preaching of the beast, it's just 666. A world without God, an existence without God, as I've already explained. One other illustration I could give you. Imagine if there were just six days in a week. No seventh day, no Sabbath, just six days. All that we did was work for ourselves, work for the world, nothing for the Lord. Just six days. That would be a world without God, of course. And this is what this figure means. A world without God. The creature without God. The creature without the seven. God has pushed, man rather, has pushed God out of his world. That's what defines the anti-Christian thought and behavior and mission. A world without God. 603 score and six. Six is the number of man of creation. We could go further into it. Ten times six is sixty. And ten times ten times six. You add that. That's 666. I think that's right. Somebody will correct me sooner or later. But uh, we have the number six there, which is uh, the number of the creature. But then we also have the ten. And remember what the ten means? That power that God delegates. Yes, Satan has a measure of power. Yes, Satan preaches a world without God. But actually, God is in control. The ten is there also. No more power, Satan, than I will allow you to have. God is there even in that statistic. 666. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. Well, that is chapter 13. The second beast out of the earth. And all that that means, well, may the Lord bless these things to us.